By December of 1776, the hopes of the young American Revolution looked really bleak. General Howe and his British troops had been just curb stomping the Americans under the leadership of George Washington. By that time, Howe had driven the Americans all the way south out of New York colony. Uh, They captured Fort Washington with 2,000 prisoners, now prisoners. The, The American army was cold, hungry, and near collapse, and with it the entire war effort. It was during those bleak days, that first winter of the Revolution, that writer Thomas Paine wrote these words, to try and inspire support for the, for the cause of American freedom that was growing more desperate by the day. Thomas Paine wrote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot in this crisis will shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and the thanks of man and woman. He continued, Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a price upon its good its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. That is good stuff. Those words uh, published in the first installment of Payne's pamphlets called The American Crisis were, were so inspiring to General Washington, he ordered the whole pamphlet to be read at Valley Forge a year later. Uh, And when I was teaching history, I used to call that the greatest halftime speech in the history of halftime speeches. Um, It really is a, a great text for what do you do when things get really tough? Well, as we've been following David through the the book of 1 Samuel, things have just started to get really tough. David is, is being hunted by King Saul, who has the entire weight of the Israeli government and the power of its military with him, as David is completely alone. How will David respond when times get desperate? Maybe more importantly, how will God respond to how David responds when times get desperate. This morning, we're going to read three little individual episodes or scenes from the beginnings of David's bleakest days. And maybe from them we can learn something about how we should respond during the times that try our souls. We'll read them one at a time. We're going to start in... 1 Samuel 21, the first nine verses. 
which read this way. Then David came to Nob. I know it looks like Nob, but it's Nob. Take my word for it. David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I've directed the young men to a certain other place. Verse 3. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there's consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. Verse 5. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept for us as previously when I set out Uh, The vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave David consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was to be taken away. Verse 7, Now the servants of Saul, excuse me, now one of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapon with me because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, have at it. For there's no other except it here. And David said, there's no sword like it. Give it to me. There's our first story of David on the run. The last thing we read before that story was David running away from Saul's capital of Gibeah. He just had that, that tear-filled uh, farewell with his best friend Jonathan. And now, as we pick up today... He's on the run, he's isolated, he's vulnerable, and he's hungry. His flight took him to a town called Nob, which, so we're east of Bethlehem, and Nob is operating like Shiloh used to at the beginning of the book. It is the religious center in Israel. Um... If you remember the beginnings of this book, the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, probably destroyed the tabernacle also, but some sort of sanctuary modeled after the tabernacle has been set up, and there are legitimate priests. Ahimelech is a a legitimate priest there, and this Ahimelech, um, the head priest, we might call him the high priest of Israel, he meets David. And he recognizes David, which is not a surprise at all, given David's great fame. But what is surprising is he seems terrified to see David, right? He's scared. Everyone loves David. Why is he so scared? What's going on? Well, rumors, or just plain news, has to have spread by this time that the king wants David dead. And so here is David showing up. David's jobs 
as king, or excuse me, as under the king, have either been to be a part of Saul's tightest inner circle or to be a field commander called the leader of a thousand. So when David shows up on the run, alone, hungry, disheveled, Ahimelech knows immediately something ain't right. David shouldn't be alone. If you read that again, that's what scares Ahimelech. It's not that David's there, it's that he's alone. Like in the law, law enforcement would call this a clue, right? Uh, he says, what are you doing here alone? See, Ahimelech does not want to make it an enemy of David. David is one bad mamma jamma. David is a warrior. He doesn't want to make an enemy of David, but Ahimelech doesn't want to make an enemy of King Saul either. Because King Saul is a violent, ruthless man. And so Ahimelech is in a, he knows he's in a bad situation. He's scared. So he asked David, what are you doing here alone? And so David begins to explain by telling the mother of all lies. Like there is not a shred of truth in anything David says here. David says, uh, well, what am I doing here alone? Uh, well, you see, I'm uh, a secret mission. I'm on a secret mission from the king. That's what I'm doing here. And, and, and my men, while I'm alone, my, I'm, uh, I've got some men uh, that I, I stationed them someplace else. And you see, I left so fast, I didn't bring anything to eat or anything to arm myself with. Okay. Would you believe that story? If you would, please take someone with you when you go shopping for used cars, please. Because that's a terrible story. David lies, but he's lying to try and protect Ahimelech. David's trying to give Ahimelech something we would call plausible deniability. David knows anyone who helps him, who helps David, is, is going to be in grave danger from Saul. So he's trying to give Ahimelech a cover story. He's trying to make it seem like if, if Saul ever finds out about this, spoiler alert, he will. That's why that Doeg the Edomite thing was thrown in there. We'll get to him in a couple weeks. But if Saul ever finds out that Ahimelech helps him, he wants Ahimelech to be able to say, I didn't know, king, he told me he was working for you. He said he was, you sent him on this mission. What was I supposed to do? I thought I was helping you, oh king. I mentioned last week, according to ancient Israelite way of thought, lies were permissible if they saved innocent life. But man, this doesn't seem great on David's part, right? We haven't even gotten to the bad part yet. Because Ahimelech tells David, man, the only food we've got around here is consecrated bread. I'll, quickly, I want to tell you what this, what this bread is. So in, when God gave the directions for building his worship center, the tabernacle, part, one little part of 
the inside of God's tabernacle was this golden table on which was supposed to be 12 loaves of bread, round loaves of bread, maybe like that in that illustration. And it was just supposed to sit out there in God's house, in God's presence. It was called the bread of the presence. It sat there for a week. The priests were supposed to bake it every Sabbath, every Saturday. And then the next Saturday, it just sat there. No one was allowed to eat it. The next Saturday, they, break tw- they baked 12 more loaves of bread, put the fresh bread out, took the old bread, and then, and only then, the priests, and only the priests, were supposed to eat that week old bread. Now, under no circumstances was it lawful for David to eat the bread. That bread. David wasn't a priest. He's not from the right tribe where priests even came from. Um, Even if he were a priest, it's not the right day. It's it's not the Sabbath. They're not supposed to eat it. Even the priests. Ahimelech jumps through some mental hoops, loopholes. Here's what Ahimelech does. Because see, I am convinced. I think. Ahimelech knows he wants to help David. I think he picks up what David's laying down. Oh, I see, secret mission, okay. Then Ahimelech says this, well, you shouldn't eat this bread. But then he pulls out this one little part of the ceremonial law that he's sure David and his men, which by the way, don't exist. Have you and your men done this one little part of the law? Like you haven't been with your wives since you've been on this secret mission. And David says, oh, oh yeah, oh sure, we will, oh, of course. Well, then I guess it's okay, you can have the bread. Listen, it's not okay. You can read the whole law, this loophole's not in there. And that's how, when David is starving, he receives his provision. He lies. And he eats the very special bread of God that he's not supposed to eat. How do you feel about our hero acting that way? Let's read another one. Starting in verse 10. Then, immediately after that, David rose and fled and and that day from Saul and he went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Isn't this the guy they sing about and dance while they sing, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So David disguised his sanity before them, and he acted insanely in their hands, and he scribbled on the doors of the gate, and he let his saliva run down into his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? There's our second story. In this scene, David does something that seems really idiotic. 
He runs away from King Saul and he goes to Gath. Now, have we met anybody in this story from Gath? Who is it? Goliath is called Goliath from Gath. What did David just pick up and take with him from, uh, from Nob? Goliath's sword. So David runs away from Saul and then him, the guy who very famously killed the most famous champion from Gath, walks into Gath carrying Goliath's sword to seek safety. That doesn't seem smart, does it? David hasn't lost his mind, though, no matter how he behaves later in this story. There's, a, there's an ancient uh, sort of tradition where we call it asylum today. We still do stuff like this. In, in war, you ever hear of, or, or a soldier maybe raises a white flag, walks out, surrenders to an enemy, hoping to be treated better than if they keep fighting? This is basically what David does. The, the, the concept is my, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Okay, in the ancient world, asylum would often be, be given to defectors, to somebody who's become an, a, an enemy of a different enemy. So David, here's how desperate he is though. He's willing to go there thinking Saul won't look for me there. And if he thinks I'm there, he's probably too scared to go there. That's where I'm going. Now, when he gets there, he doesn't receive asylum. He doesn't receive protection. He gets arrested. It's hard to tell that in that story, but he tells us in his sort of Hebrew way, the author does. Here in verse 13, when he disguised his sanity, right? And he acted insanely right here. In their hands. See that little phrase? In their hands. They weren't holding David in their hands, right? He wasn't getting a massage, right? He was arrested. And you don't have to take my word for that. Read the Psalms that David wrote about this, uh, uh, about this episode. That's, we read one this morning. Psalm 34. Psalm, is it 50, 56? Write those down and read them later. He makes very clear he was arrested. Okay, he was seized by them. All of a sudden, David's made a mistake. They recognize David, but they don't give him asylum. What do they know about David? This guy's killed tens of thousands of what kind of people? Philistines. Their people. This guy, the king of the land, this guy is one of the most important rulers of our greatest enemy. He's either first or second on uh, the Philistines' most wanted list. And suddenly David realizes, I have made a grave miscalculation. They're going to kill me. So what David does, because he's been promised he's going to survive. He's going to be the next king of Israel, right? Who says so? God. So what David does is he looks, he's in those ancient handcuffs and he looks at that king and he says, King, you can try to execute me if you want, but my God says I'm going to be the next king. So have at it, buddy. And he bravely and courageously stands up to, is that what he does? No, he starts drawing on the walls and drooling all over himself. He pleads insanity. He does. And incredibly, it works. The king of Gath says, do I look like I need another crazy person? 
get this guy out of here. And they let him go. More lying, more deception, but the bad part in the ancient world would have been, honestly, drooling on your own beard would have been a, the height of shame. I just call it taking a nap, but uh, for them, it would have been, it would have been a shameful display, unbecoming of the Lord's anointed. And that's how David receives, he's saved from their hands. Let's read our last one. The beginning of chapter 22. So, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to David. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented with life gathered to David and he became captive over them, captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with David. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And then he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart Go back into harm's way, into the land of Judah. And so David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Okay. So David pleads insanity, gets away from the Philistines in Gath, and now he uh, runs away, hides, and is bi- meets up with his biological family. His dad, Jesse, his brothers, uh, siblings, their families, all that stuff. If Saul would use his own daughters to get at David, what do you think Saul might do if Saul got his hand on David's dad or brothers? It doesn't take much imagination to figure out that David's whole family is in real danger, Right? So that's why they come and find David. And David takes them around the Dead Sea and into another enemy nation, Moab. Um, actually, before they get there, there's this really strange scene in verse 2 where it's not just David's family that gathers to David. Everyone, a whole bunch of people, everyone who's in distress, who's in debt, uh, so just a bunch of riffraff, people who are just discontented with life, sort of flock to David and they become the beginnings of some kind of army for David. All of a sudden he's not alone. Safety in numbers. So then David takes all of them around the Dead Sea into Moab. And there might be, I think there is, a reason why David would decide, all right, Gath didn't work, but he's obviously still doing that, seeking asylum from a foreign country thing. Why does he pick Moab of all the enemies? Well, there's a reason. If you read the book of Ruth, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. It's only four little chapters and it's fantastic. At the end of the book of Ruth, 
spoiler alert, you learn that Ruth is David's great-grandma. Um, Jesse is Ruth's grandson. Uh, Jesse almost surely knew Ruth. That was grandma. David might have been held by Ruth, might have known Ruth, I don't know. And we also learn in that book that Ruth is from where? From Moab. She's a Moabite. So when David takes his biological family to Moab, he's, yes, asking, will you take care of my family because they are your enemy's enemy. We are, we're definitely enemies of King Saul, but they're also kind of family. There's also Moabite blood running through Jesse and through David. And David, is, he's enjoying a bit of safety. And a prophet comes and says, hey, no more safety for you, buddy. God wants you to go back, uh, back into Judah, back into harm's way. And he does. That's our, our three-scene play for today. That's how God gives for David. Provision, salvation, and sanctuary. Safety. What are we supposed to learn from that stuff? Well, this is a very different sort of story from what we've been having with David. Up until this point, we know David has been anointed by the prophet Samuel. He is God's choice to be the next king. We know David's going to be the next king. Sometimes David doesn't act like David. Sure, David's going to be the next king, but we know. Up until this point, though, David has always acted with courageous faith. Somebody ought to go out there and shut that giant up, right? Oh, who would do that? I will. David has always acted with the utmost integrity. And God's always been with David. How's God going to treat David, though, when things get desperate and David maybe behaves in some ways, ways that God might not like? What's going to happen to David when his behavior slips? Will God remove his protection? The answer is no. We read through these things and we read of David lying, deceiving. Those are the big ones for us. But I got to tell you that the original audience, the bread thing would have been a much bigger deal. We read of our hero doing that stuff and we want to turn the page. Let's get away from that. We don't like our heroes to act like that. Or we want to look for reasons why it was okay. Like when I say things like, you know, to the ancient Israelite mind, you could tell lies if it saved innocent life. Now I was looking, we go, okay, David is still, that feels, makes us feel better about David, right? You know why? Because we still carry around with us this idea that for, if God is going to do good by me, that depends 
on my behavior. We still carry around this idea that if I don't, if my behavior slips, God's going to, he's going to let me have it. Do you know that's not true? Praise God, that's not how God works. In our first story this morning, David runs to the house of God for help. I think he goes there because he knows Goliath's sword is there, and he probably knows Ahimelech is a man of integrity who will help take a risk and help him. When he gets there, there's no bread. All he eats is he eats that sacred bread. The, the bread of the presence, I just want you to understand the significance of here. The sanctuary of God, formerly the tabernacle. This is a, an illustration of what the tabernacle of God looked something like. This is a cutaway, right? You usually couldn't see in this. This uh, curtain in the back back here would have gone all the way across here. Just to understand what you're looking at. Here's what that was. Um, when Israel lived in tents, God gave instructions Build me a tent. I want to have a house because I want to be with people. Now, God didn't need a house, right? God is obviously infinitely enormous, right? But he wanted to illustrate, I want to be with my people. I want to live with people. That's why people were created, because I want to live with you. So God said, make me this really fancy tent, a two-room job, one bedroom. This back here is like God's bedroom. It's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. We could think of that like God's bedroom in his tent. This out here, this big rectangular room called the Holy Place, that's like God's parlor. And God's parlor, this big candelabra looking thing, it looked like what Liberace used to put on top of the piano, but that's not what it was. Anybody? Liberace? Anybody? Sorry. Um, this was a multi-lamp lampstand, and the direction said, always burning. In God's house, the lights are always on out in God's parlor. Lights are always on. And then, right here, if you see these two little stacks right here, that's the, that's the showbread or the, the bread of the presence. There was always to be bread in God's parlor. Now why in God's house, in God's tent, in God's parlor would the lights always be on and there always be bread set of the tables always set? Why? Does God need bread? No, people do. Does God need the lights to be on to be able to see in his parlor? No, of course not. Who needs stuff like that? People. God says, set my tent up. And make sure it's always ready for guests, just in case any of my friends stop by. But no one ever did. Why? Because God said, the only people who can come in and have felt this kind of fellowship with me are righteous people. And there aren't any. See, this part of this whole system was to teach people God wants to be with people, but sin separates people from God. 
Do you know what our greatest need is to continue in this metaphor? Our greatest need, even more than we need the food, is we need the fellowship with God. We need to be able to go right and stop by, hey God, it's me, long time no see. Oh, you got bread, let's sit down and eat. And God, oh man, yeah, let me get you a cup, let's sit down and how you been? Our greatest need is to have that kind of relationship with God. But we can't get in. We can't eat the bread. Our sin separates us from that. That's why God said nobody but nobody eats that bread. So when David shows up and he lies and he takes that bread and eats it, that's scandalous. It's scandalous. Jesus would talk about this incident later. But not as a way to say, oh, David didn't do anything wrong. You know, if your situation's bad enough, sin's usually okay. That's never Jesus' point. Here's what we're supposed to be learning here. God made a way for sinful people to get to the bread. When, when David decides he's so desperate, his, his, his behavior slips, God doesn't say, all right, that's it. Enough with you. I got to try again. Who's he going to try? Honestly. Who's he going to get to be better than David. Nobody. God, it's like he's signaling through this, through this passage. I'm going to make the, the bread accessible through this guy, David. See, David's great descendant is going to be a man named Jesus, himself also a Jew. And Jesus is going to call himself in John 6, the bread of life. And not only can sinners access the bread of life, only people who understand they are sinners ever will. God doesn't, God doesn't kick David out of the story because of his sin. He signals, man, pay attention to this guy. The bread's getting accessible, kids. God's provision, God's salvation, God's sanctuary extends to sinners who don't deserve God's provision, God's salvation, and God's sanctuary. And when God promises things, unconditionally promises them, even our sin can't undo the promises. Right? Our provision from God, our salvation from God, our sanctuary, our safety from God come because of God's behavior, not ours. And that's a really good thing. In this story, even though David decided to deceive and to eat bread, he wasn't supposed to eat. David did some things wrong. It, it wasn't those things that saved David. God saved David. And write down, we don't have time to read them. Write down Psalm 34, Psalm 56, read them later. David says at the beginning, I'm writing these about that time that I acted crazy in Gath. He doesn't write a poem saying, let me tell you how crafty I was. Let me tell you how crazy I acted. He says things like this. I did write a few things down. 
I sought the Lord's help and he answered me. He delivered me from my greatest fears. This oppressed man cried out and the Lord heard. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He delivers those who are discouraged. And then this one, he said to God, your vows, your promises are binding upon me, even me. And then the last story where David goes to Moab, we learn that God plans his goodness way ahead of time. I'm convinced God was planning to save Jesse and David and their, their whole family using Moab four generations before David ever lived. If you read the book of Ruth, here's what happened way before David was ever remotely thought of. God allowed a terrible famine to hit his people in Judah. And I'm sure people were like, what are you doing, God? We're starving down here, right? Some of those people made a decision that the law said they shouldn't have made. They went to Moab. They weren't supposed to hang out with the Moabites. But we're starving. What else are we going to do? So this famine God sent, takes one family, drives them around the Dead Sea into Moab. When they're there, their sons do something else they weren't supposed to do. They marry Moabite women. And after that, the men start dying, like dropping like flies. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Three of them. And suddenly there are three very desperate widows, a Jewish woman named Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law who have nowhere to turn. They're destitute, they're broke. Naomi says, girls, I got to go home. At least I can be a beggar at home. One of the daughter-in-laws says, all right, good luck out there. See you later. I'm staying here. But Ruth says, nope, where you go, I'm going to go. Your people are going to become my people. Your God is now my God. Ruth accompanies Naomi back to Bethlehem. She meets this guy named Boaz. They get all hitched up. They start having kids. They have a kid named uh, Obed. Obed has a kid named Jesse. Jesse has a kid named David. David has a great-great-grandson named Jesus. Here's why I bring all that stuff up. Clear back during that famine, did people have any idea what God was doing? Right? And God didn't break in and say, don't worry, I'm planning to bring the Messiah and this is all part of the... No, they just had to sit there and wonder. God, we're starving to death. I know. I'm on it. How many times did Naomi and Ruth doubt God's goodness? You know what God was doing? Saving the entire world. And he was saving Ruth's, great-grand, Ruth's grandson and great-grandson and great-great-grandkids and all that stuff. And he started it four generations in advance. Now here's why that's important to remember. Sometimes we're the ones that find ourselves in a famine. Right? Sometimes we're the ones that life really stinks. And we won't understand either, but we've got the same God. We don't have any way of knowing but that what we walk through right now might be someone else's salvation four generations from now.
And we also learn from this passage uh, and that really weird thing where everybody's in debt and everybody who hates their life and everybody who just starts wandering out and, hey, hey, David, can we hang out with you? You look pretty desperate and awful. We'd sort of like to hang out with you. Misery loves company. You know that? Listen, that, lo- that looks like the people who gathered around Jesus and Jesus loved. That looks like Jesus' church today. You know who has always gathered toward the good king? Usually it's not people who think life is awesome the way it's set up right now. Usually it's people who realize, I am so desperate, I don't have anywhere else to turn. God's provision, God's salvation, God's sanctuary, His protection comes to sinners who don't deserve it, comes in ways we cannot plan for, uh, predict, or even understand why we're going through it. And it comes to people who understand they are desperate and really have nowhere else to turn. And what that teaches us is when it's our turn to walk through a time that tries men's souls. And say, wait a second, I'm not the first one to not be able to understand what God is doing. This doesn't mean God has fallen asleep, that God has taken a vacation, or that God is punishing me. No, God punished him. God is completely satisfied with the amount of punishment that your sins have been punished with. God is not angry at your sin. He doesn't need to punish your sin anymore. He will discipline you because he's a good dad. But he does not need to smack you when you misbehave anymore. God is not in the business of punishing sins to people on earth. Do you believe that? And honestly, if he is in that business, he's doing a terrible job. Think about it. Are there some really awful people who are not getting what's coming to them? Then why do you think you are the one that's getting what you deserve when you misbehave? That's pride. That's pride. God's been planning our best for a long, long time. We won't understand everything we are walking through, but his provision, his salvation, and his sanctuary comes to sinful people who will just come to him and say, I'm desperate, I got nowhere else to turn. You have the bread of life. Where else am I going to go? And he says, come on in. I've made the bread available. The one who eats it will never be hungry. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, even, the, even the, the hard parts and the confusing parts. God, thank you for the example of David um, sort of not being great because he seems pretty unattainable in most times and he seems pretty relatable in this passage. Um, God, thank you that you do not remove your provision, your protection, your sanctuary, your... Um, from sinful people. You have provided it specifically to sinful people through the bread of life, your son Jesus. God, we are a bunch of the riffraff, um, the debtors, the people dissatisfied with the world who have gathered to the good king.
thank you uh, that you allow us to come and be a part of your army. Uh, Send us out and make us effective while we wait for you to reign. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and let's finish.